Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure that you knew that Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections has now been added to the Christian Heritage Series, with an introduction from Joe Rigney. Due to the shallowness of much modern Christian worship and life, we can often think of the display of intense religious emotions as a hypocritical outward show. And we are right to be suspicious, since the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17.9. Nevertheless, emotions are a gift from God, and are a part of what God redeems. When the First Great Awakening was breaking out in New England in the 1700s, Pastor Jonathan Edwards approved of it and prayed for great revival. However, as a man who suffered from depression and melancholy, Edwards also warned people of the dangers of relying alone on such intense emotions. The center of the Christian religion is not our emotions, but Christ and His goodness. This classic will inspire you to consider both your life and your emotions and to follow Christ in love. Get Religious Affections today by Jonathan Edwards with a fantastic intro from Joe Rigney at canonpress.com. Welcome to the podcast, episode 144. Episode 144. I want to talk about what it means to be a subject and what it means to be a citizen. One of the things that has happened in the whole um, COVID business, the lockdowns, all the governors shutting their states down, the vast majority of governors in the United States turned around to Beth Moore and everybody else and said, go home. So we all went home. We're all shut down some more so than others, but here we are. Now, um, when someone decides to do something that is contrary to the governor's order, one of the things that comes up is, comes up from the pulpit, comes up from one Christian talking to another Christian, where someone says, well, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, we, uh, 1 Peter 2, Romans 13 says that we have to obey the existing authorities. Now, yes, that's, and that's true. First, let me go on the record as saying that we need to obey Romans 13. We need to obey 1 Peter 2. But when we, when we say existing authorities, what do we mean? What are we pointing to? If we, if, if we were all slaves in Egypt pulling on a rope, that had a big block attached to it that, that we're hauling it up to the next pyramid. And the rule of Pharaoh was absolute. His claims were absolute, and no one had ever challenged those claims in Egypt for centuries. And, uh, and we're just peons doing our thing. Well, then we're subjects, okay? So the question is, when we, are, when we have a situation like what we have today, are we in that position? What is our position? This is another way of asking, what is the existing authority? One of the things this has done is it made me, um, this whole thing has made me 
print out a copy of the Idaho Constitution. I've read, I've obvi- obviously read the federal, com- the U.S. Constitution before, various times before. But uh, this time, this is the first time I've ever read through the Idaho Constitution clean through. The thing that is striking about it is that if you were to ask uh, the question, who, who is the ultimate, earthly speaking, that we're, we're, uh, we're not talking express theology here. We're talking in earthly terms. The Idaho Constitution um, says in the preamble, it gives gratitude to Almighty God for our freedoms. So it's recognized that there's a transcendental uh, reality that is not part of the system down here, and we acknowledge him. But down here, when we're talking not about theology, but rather about civics, when we're not talking about theology, but civics, what is the existing authority? How, how, does, the hierarchy, how does the hierarchy run in our system of constitutional governance? Well, the, we have to distinguish between the highest incipient authority and the highest established authority. The highest established authority is the Constitution, is the supreme law of the land. Uh, so uh, the Constitution, and the Constitution sets up a framework, and that framework has to, has to do with the separation of powers, balance of powers, um, where you have at the federal level uh, the judicial and the executive and the legislative branch. And then you have a federal system also where you have uh, something very similar at the state level. So at Idaho, we also have the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. Almost all the states, I think, I think Nebraska only accepted, all the states have bicameral le- legislatures where they have a Senate and a House. Um, Nebraska, I think, has a unicameral legislature. But all of them have legislature, all of them have an executive, a governor, and all of them have court system, state court system. Okay, now, let's say I grew up as a citizen of a particular state, and I went to a school that taught civics. I've read the Constitution a number of times. I've been a resident, let's say I've been a resident of Idaho my entire life. And let's say one day, out of the blue, I get a tax bill from the state of North Carolina. North Carolina just decided to mail me a bill. Now, if I look at it and say, I've never been to North Carolina, I've never had anything to do with North Carolina, I've not made any purchases in North Carolina, this is not right, and I wad it up and throw it away, am I disregarding the, am I disobeying the established authority? And let's say that this, the whole thing is not a clerical error. Let's say it's not a mistake. Let's say North Carolina decided that uh, they, they were going to tax me for some, for some reason, and they were insistent upon it. Now, the fundamental disagreement here is not over who's right and who's wrong. The fundamental disagreement is this is how we should frame it in our minds. Is North Carolina, or am I, disobeying Romans 13? Because somebody is disregarding the way our laws are constructed. Either they have the right to do that, and I'm disregarding them when I shouldn't be, 
or they don't have the right to do that, and they're doing it anyway. In that case, they are the ones disobeying Romans 13. When you have a showdown like, like we currently have, the governor, let's say a governor says, everybody, you know, and the governor of Michigan says you can't plant beans in your backyard. Should there be thought bubbles that appear over a bunch of Michiganders' heads saying, does she have the right to do that? Does she have the right to tell us that we can't buy a packet of beans to plant in our backyard because of the coronavirus? Is that, do her sweeping powers actually give her the power to do that? Another way of saying this is, is her lockdown order lawful? The Supreme Court of Wisconsin, just now, just uh, as I'm recording this, just yesterday, I think, or the day before, struck down the, governor, the governor's um, uh, lockdown order as unconstitutional. They said he had the initial authority to declare a state of emergency, but he couldn't prolong the state of emergency without in involving the legislature, right? So, um, if, I, if I have the live option of saying, you know, I have a difference of opinion with the president or a difference of opinion with the sheriff or difference of opinion with the governor or difference of opinion with the district court judge, if I have a mental space reserved for the possibility that the person with whom I'm ha having the disagreement might be the one in violation of Romans 13, then I'm a citizen. If I think that whoever is bossing me around in a loud voice must have the right to boss me around because he is doing so, then I'm a subject, not a citizen. Now, in a constitutional republic like ours, if you act like a subject when you are in fact a citizen, you are in defiance not only of the constitutional system, but therefore you are disobeying Romans 13. Plotcast episode 144, the hamartiological part of Plotcast 144. Our word this time around is atimao, atimao. The word is rendered in the KJV in the one place where it occurs as handle shamefully. It occurs in a parable that the Lord told, and that's in Mark 12, verse 4. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away, shamefully handled. There it is. Sent him away, shamefully handled. When we wrong someone, what is it that makes us want to really do it up brown? Right, so you, you do, some, do something not quite right to somebody else. What makes you want to go the extra mile? What makes you want to twist the knife? What makes you want to really um, be contemptuous of them? One of the reasons we treat someone we've wronged with contempt is because we are trying to retroactively justify to ourselves the fact that we treated them initially with contempt. So if you start a fight with somebody, and people do this, they do it with their spouse, they do it with their kids, they do it with their neighbors, they do it with their enemies. Um, let's say you haul off and say something unkind. Okay? You say something unkind. And the, the unkind thing that you say to the person uh, causes them to react. Your insult landed, and you wound them, and you you see that you wound you you see that you wounded them. Well, you feel bad. You've got, now you've got a choice, right? You could feel bad about what you said, 
which is dangerously close to repentance. Or you could double down and insult them again and insult them again until they lash out at you, until they lose their temper, lash out at you, and say even meaner things about you than you ever said about them. And then what you do is you grab that as a choice morsel, and then you use it in this magic, uh, in your magic of uh, self-justifying time travel. You use what they did to you. Uh, you did, you know, A hit B, and then A hits B again so that B reacts, and then A grabs what B does back at him as the, as the excuse or the justification for what he did in the first place. To take something from somebody is to treat them with contempt. But when we do that, if we leave it there, it seems like they are the victim and we are the culprit. Because we don't like being the culprit, we then do what we can to make them objectively contemptible. If we succeed, then we irrationally justify whatever it was we did before we made them so contemptible. This is the kind of thing that happened to the faithful servant in the parable. It wasn't that the master sent the servant and they said, no, thank you, we're not going to do as you say, have a nice day, which they could have done. But what they, what they did was then when they turned him away, they wronged him. And uh, oftentimes, the, the reason that causes a dam to break is that we are trying to cover him with contempt so that we can feel good about having treated him with contempt initially. So my book review this time around is a book called Performing Flea by P.G. Woodhouse. And actually, part well, the editor is another gentleman, a friend of Woodhouse's, a fellow writer, whose name I've unfortunately forgotten. But Overlook Press is um, releasing all the works of P.G. Woodhouse in nice, inexpensive, hardback editions. I really like them. Overlook Press are... Uh, they are doing this, and it's a really wonderful set. And I've been working through them. Woodhouse wrote about 90, about 90 books. A handful of them, maybe 10 or so, I'm guessing, are schoolboy stories. And there's the occasional flash of wit, but they're not like the later Woodhouse. At some point in Woodhouse's writing career, uh, something clicked, and his, his distinctive voice came into, um, into existence. Well, the thing that's interesting about this book, Performing Flea, is that his friend, that he and his friend corresponded um, back and forth over many decades, uh, writing letters back and forth. And what his friend did was he collected these letters, and they were both writers, they were both professional writers. And uh, first, Woodhouse is as funny in his personal letters to a friend as he is in his... Uh, uh, in his Jeeves, uh, in his Jeeves books, or, or Smith, or whatever the book it is, or the Blanding's Castle book, he's as funny in those letters. But he's also he, because they're both writers. They're um, they talk about the craft of writing. They they talk frequently about what it is, um, what you need to do to plot a book correctly, and what you need to do um, uh, in in writing a book, and and. And you can see all the uh, the challenges that Woodhouse had in uh, putting some of his his books together. You don't get the full course, but it's like reading a book on how to write novels by P.G. Woodhouse. So there's some a, a number of interesting uh, 
number of interesting things about it and some gossipy things and, you know, famous figures that came in and out of uh, uh, Woodhouse's life and, you know, his interactions with Malcolm Muggeridge and the book he wrote when he was, he spent time as a uh, prisoner of war in the Second World War. He was, he was in, in an internment uh, camp and one of his books uh, he wrote uh, while he was there. Um, and uh, I think he had one interaction with uh, Rudyard Kipling and yeah, so you have um, that that level of uh, interest. He, so Woodhouse was a very famous, uh, successful writer in his day. So back before the um, uh, back before the Second World War, uh, Woodhouse would be would write a piece for the Saturday Evening Post and get tens of thousands of dollars for the piece that he wrote. So he's a very successful writer for for that uh, time. And he traveled with uh, successful people. He knew a bunch of successful people. So there's, there's that, um, there's that element in it as well. But the 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 big thing that you would uh, take away from it, if you are, uh, if you wonder at all, how he did it, how how did Woodhouse do it? Uh, there are a number of hints. Uh, for if you're an aspiring writer, uh, and you have ever wondered that, how did he do it? Well, this is the this is a, a good book to start with. Performing Flea. It's part of the Overlook uh, series, and of course, I commend it to you. <laughs>